Hey, everybody, and welcome to Beyond the Classroom. I'm your host, Jenna Dykeman. I'm a registered dietitian and one of the nutrition faculty members at BYU-Idaho. Beyond the Classroom is a 13-episode podcast that will take you beyond the concepts you are learning in the classroom and give you the opportunity to dig deeper into the world of nutrition. In this week's episode of Beyond the Classroom, Jeff Hamblin joins us on the show. Jeff will be sharing with you how he was inspired to become a chef, what culinary school was like, the importance of family mealtimes, and the role lipids have in enhancing the flavor and texture of food. Before talking with Jeff, the TAs, Haley, Brianna, and Kenzie, share with you what they've done to stay sane during this time of quarantine and stay-at-home orders. Are you all ready? All right, let's get to it. And this is Time Out with the TAs. For the TA segment this week, I wanted to start off with a bit of a spiritual thought and kind of discussion. Um, for our home sacrament meeting this last week with my family, we sang the hymn, Count Your Blessings, and it made me think of a quote by James E. Faust that I used to have tucked away into my scriptures when I was in seminary. And it said, a grateful heart is a beginning of greatness. It is an expression of humility. It is a foundation for the development of such virtues as prayer, faith, courage, contentment, happiness, love, and well-being. And I think for me, especially at this time, I've been searching and praying to recognize my blessings far more in my life and be able to pick them out and show appreciation for them as they're happening rather than a few weeks after and looking back and going, oh yeah, that was a good thing. Um, So something... Um, It made me think about how we used to run the class when it was in class. And at the beginning of class time, we would often start by just asking if anyone had any good news to share from the weekend or the day previous. And over the last several semesters, we've been able to compliment and congratulate and celebrate with a lot of students and their good news. Um, And it allowed them also to vocalize the blessings in their life and I think that's a good thing so if you guys Haley Brianna Sister Dykeman if you wouldn't mind thinking of something that was good in your week that you wouldn't that you would like to share I think that'd be awesome Um, and while you're thinking I'll start off with my good news so literally just before we started recording this I got off the phone with my orthopedic surgeon and I'll be finally getting in for an ACL hamstring surgery right away I had a really bad knee injury in my senior year of high school so that was like over five years ago and every doctor that I've been to has told me there's nothing to be done and I'm just gonna need to brace it and 
enjoy the pain of it until I'm older and then I'll be able to get my knee replaced when I'm old. Um, and that just doesn't work because I live a very active lifestyle. So finally I was able to get an MRI in December and I was sent to an orthopedic surgeon to have an over the phone appointment this morning. And he was first of all pretty shocked that nothing had been done with this yet, but he wants to have my hamstring surgery, my ACL hamstring surgery done. Um, by this summer, hopefully. So we need COVID to go away so I can get that done so I can get back to having a leg that works. That's my good news. <laughs> Yay, that's so awesome for you. Thank you. That I'm is so, so exciting. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, that's really awesome. Is there any good news that you guys would like to share? Have a little positive moment here. I will share something. This week has been a real eye-opener for me in a lot of ways. And I really felt like this week I spent a lot of time studying in the scriptures just for whatever reason. This week I was really motivated to do that. And I felt like I learned so much. And it's the kind of things that it's just simple doctrines, simple truths. But I have just really felt a new perspective on so many things about life. Just understanding my purpose here on earth and Heavenly Father's plan of salvation and happiness, it has brought honestly just so much joy in every day since I've just kind of been reminded of those truths. And I'm very, very grateful for that. That's so good, Haley. I love that for you. I think something good that's happened this week was I was able to spend a lot of time outside. Like while we were in Rexburg, we um, went went and visited Mesa Falls and we went to the Palisades and just hiked and it was so beautiful and it reminded me of the scripture Alma 30:44, which says all things to note there is a God yea even the earth and all things that are upon the face of it yea in the motion yea and also all the planets which move in their regular form do witness that there is a supreme creator just as I was out outside and enjoying nature it was so peaceful and it just, and it was so beautiful. And it just re reminded me just how like all powerful God is and how loving he is as well for how he created all this for us, for our enjoyment. So it was just, it was a really good, good weekend to, to spend outside and just spend hiking. That's so awesome. And such a good scripture too. And just a good way to, I don't know, recognize those blessings. My family were spread across the whole country, basically. And a couple months ago, my aunt decided that we all should have a competition and grow sunflowers and see who can grow the tallest sunflower. And um, some of my family live in southern Utah or Texas place, or California, places where it gets pretty warm early in this year, whereas I'm in Idaho. So I had to wait a little while to plant my seeds so they could start growing um, when it wasn't still freezing temperatures. Anyway, I planted them about two weeks ago and last week they started sprouting and now they are about, I don't know, maybe two or three inches. So that is very exciting. My aunt's sunflowers are about seven feet, so I'm still a ways away, but you know, soon they'll be that tall so that's been that's been a fun competition kind of helped us all stay connected 
and just have this group text and showing each other our pictures of our sunflower seeds and the progressions. That's my goodness. That's so fun. That reminds me, just a couple weeks ago, my mom had to go up to her classroom. She's a teacher at a high school to just grab a couple of things. And while we were up there, the greenhouse, the school greenhouse was open and the horticulture teacher was basically saying, take any plants that you want because I can't take care of them. There's too many of them and they're all just going to die. So we took home like a car full of plants to plant in our garden and a million succulents and everything. And it was so awesome, like such a blessing. That's so cool. I love that. I love all those good news. Thank you guys for sharing. Um, And then I guess I just challenge the classes that are listening to this to take some time out of your day, whether it's in the evening, if you're journaling or something, and or if you're just talking to your family or friends, but to share some of that good news, even if it seems silly, do it because it makes you feel good and it'll make other people feel good too. So yes. this week for our Time Out with the TA segment, we wanted to talk about some things that we've been doing during quarantine that help us stay sane or help us stay active that are also following the regulations um, from the government. So I will start. One of the things that I've gotten really into, and I might have mentioned this before to my class, but I have gotten really into doing digital art. And that's something that I've never been able to do before because I've just never really had the time or the means, but I have an iPad now. And so I've had the ability to just start creating art like any time that I don't have something to do in it. I found like it's been really helpful because it still stretches my mind and my creativity and when I'm done with it I have something really cool that I can be proud of. So I've really enjoyed doing that. That is so fun. You'll have to show us some of your art. Okay. I will. I love that. Uh, Something that I've been doing is, so I love playing spike ball and I have three siblings and you need four to play spike ball. So I taught my family how to play spike ball. And so it's like every single day in the afternoon, pretty much, we just get together and we play spike ball or we'll, and then like in the evening, we usually watch a movie together. So it's been fun to just spend extra time with family. That's so fun. We always play spike ball in the summer at our family reunions. I love it. It's so fun. My family is terrible at spike ball. So we cannot play that. (laughs) We have, like, all the stuff for it, and we're just horrible. Horribly aggressive or horrible skill set? <laughs> horrible skill set. Like, we, can't, uh, okay. we just can't play it. <laughs> That's so funny. That is funny. Um, for us, we've been doing a lot of cooking and learning um, – my grandma's old recipes she's german russian heritage and so we've been learning those recipes but then kind of to go along with that we've been doing a lot of gardening and getting our our um, garden set up for the season and our yard set up and we've been learning a lot about composting so we've got our compost set up for the season and so that's been that's been interesting it's been a lot of food focused time in our house and it's been cool that sounds so fun Especially like learning new recipes. I feel like I um, need to do more of that. I feel like lately me and my family have just been cooking the same recipes that we always cook. But that'd be a good idea to just look up some of my, some recipes that my grandma cooks and cook some of those. 
It is. It's fun. And if you're lucky and you have that German heritage, it's a lot of bread and meat. <laughs> and it's so delicious. A lot of fried things. It's really good. So we shared some of the things that we do, we have been doing during quarantine. Uh, maybe you can try some of our ideas or just find something that, that you enjoy doing to, to pass this time. And get outside and stay active and just have fun, spend time with family. There's still so many things that we can do during this time of quarantine. Today, Beyond the Classroom welcomes Jeff Hamblin to the show. Jeff is a faculty member at BYU-Idaho in the Animal and Food Science Department. He's been teaching at BYU-Idaho for over 20 years. Examples of courses that he teaches include Intro to Food Science, Food Processing, and Food Product Development. Well, hi, Jeff. Thanks for letting me interview you today and welcome to the podcast. It'll be great to hear more about you and what you do as a chef and what you're doing here at BYU-Idaho. So thanks again for letting me interview you. You're welcome. Thanks for interviewing me. So today, I thought it'd be interesting to kind of hear about the process that you went through to become a chef and kind of what inspired you to become a chef. So what made you decide to become a chef or what was your inspiration? Well, I wouldn't say that there was one, you know, necessarily one decisive moment. I think it's a, a culmination of things. Uh, my, I always loved my, my grandmother. I always thought my grandmother and my mother loved to cook. And um, so I thought it was kind of genetic. I thought, wow, you know, my passion for food is, is, is genetic, but, um, and partly because, you know, they had me cook. My mom raised me and put me in cooking 4-H, and I was the, <clears throat> excuse me, ended up being the president of the cooking 4-H club one year. Um, I would, I had three older sisters, and so my mom would have me cook a meal typically once a week, and uh, so I just kind of grew up with it, and I realized when I went to college that I could cook better than most everybody. Um, I just, not because I thought I was special, just because I could. And then I was called on uh, my mission to Italy. And uh, that was uh, probably, you know, if you there were a defining moment, that there definitely was a, a huge one to go to Italy and experience the food and realize, wow, if I'm ever going to have this again, I, I really need to learn how to cook it. And so I, and we didn't have a lot of members that cooked for us. So we did a lot of cooking. And so I would ask people all the time. So how do you cook this? How do you prepare this? And, and so I kind of started to study and practice and uh, I would spend P days sometimes making, uh, I remember one P day, I had a, a companion who was really interested in, in learning some things too. So we interviewed, talked to some people and they taught us how to make uh, a tortellini. And so I remember one P day rolling and rolling by hand uh, pasta dough to, to get it thin enough for tortellini. And then we they sh had shown us how to, how to form and shape them. And, and so we made a filling and, and formed and shaped uh, tortellini. Um, if there was one moment on my mission or one moment that I could define, I guess, um, was my, 
when I, I had a, we had a contact, I guess you could call him. He, I don't know. He didn't really want to learn anything about the gospel, but there were only like three members in this town. And so he would do, he happened to meet the missionaries and he would do almost anything for you. And he was a chef restaurant owner. And I had my favorite Italian meal and it still is. Um, and I would typically have that. But one day we'd had a particularly hard uh, experience, hard day. And wasn't, you know, I was maybe a little down, I guess. And I went in and he, and he always asked. He never, he never assumed that, you know, what I wanted to eat. He always asked. And um, this day, I, I don't remember what I said. I just remember saying, you know, I don't know. I, I, I expressed emotions to him. Describe, um, I'm sure it was in terms of food. But to me, I was expressing some emotions. I, I probably needed comfort food. And um, so I, I said some things to him. I don't remember what. And about 20 minutes later, he came out of the kitchen and he put this plate of food in front of me. And if I were to serve it to you, you would be like, wow, this is the food that you really liked. It, it wasn't really super like the best food ever made, but it was exactly what I needed at that time. And I remember eating it and it fulfilled the emotions uh, that I had and uh, lifted me in a way that I've only experienced spiritually. And I remember leaning across the table to my companion saying, this is art. If I could do this for someone, it would make me truly happy. And I guess that was, you know, maybe the key moment, uh, if there was one in my life where I, I thought, you know, this is something I would like to do. Um, I would like to be able to affect people in the way that I was affected that day. That's such a neat story. And first of all, yeah, that's so amazing that you got to serve your mission in Italy and kind of be immersed in their culture and their culinary culture. And as you're sharing that story, I just thought about how food definitely has that power. There's a lot of memory connected to food like what you said with, you know, cooking with your mom and your grandma and, and then also with that contact that cooked that dish. That's, that's really awesome to hear. After, I guess, you got back from your mission, kind of what was your process of going to culinary school and becoming a chef? Well, first of all, I had to figure out that that's what I wanted to do. And uh, I actually came back and uh, didn't, I didn't enroll. I wasn't enrolled in food courses. Um, I wish I had that foresight at that time to to understand and and to do that. Um, but I loved what I loved was creating. Um, and I looking back, I know that now. But um, and and that's sometimes when we choose majors and we look at different things uh, to do with our lives, we try to find something you know that we we fit or we have some magical power to, you know, to do, or I don't know exactly what it is, but um, when in reality, the thing that I love to do is create things that more than anything. And food helps me to, that's one of the outlets, if you will, that I like about food. And so in, in terms of uh, when I was a student, I, I studied English. All right. It's a long story, but I, I got into it because of creative writing um, was another outlet for me uh, in terms of creating. 
but it wasn't something that I really was super passionate about. Uh, I discovered after a while. Um, and in the back, kind of in the background, uh, I was cooking and creating on my own and realized, you know what? This is, this cooking thing really is more um, exciting to me. I'm more passionate about it uh, than, than the writing and, and English. And so I decided to, to go to culinary school. And uh, it took me quite a while. I, I just decided really after my bachelor's degree, but I went ahead and finished my master's degree before I ended up going to culinary school. Um, and then I went to, uh, I went to one year program, condensed program in uh, Portland. Most programs are an associate degree that are two years. Because I had all of that education behind me, I chose a one year program that was condensed a little bit faster. And that meant a lot of hours. Um, culinary school was hard. Uh, spiritually, it was the hardest thing I've ever done. Um, it was very spiritually draining. I remember I would go to any church event I could go to, you know, not just Sunday, but even uh, I remember going to church basketball, of all things, to, to try to get, a, get the spirit back. Uh, if you can imagine going to church yeah. basketball. <laughs> you know you're spiritually drained if you're using church basketball <laughs> to get the spirit back. Yeah, um, but I, that's what I did. And, um, and, but I was actually surrounded. The Lord provided me with a really good opportunity uh, to be with some good people. I ended up in a, a carpooling with a group, which meant that we could stay together through all of our classes. And we had first priority on classes because we had this big carpool. And we ended up kind of this little cohort group that um, it really helped me and watched out for me. In, in a lot of ways. And so even though it was, I can't imagine doing it um, totally alone. Uh, it would have been, you know, even more spiritually draining and more difficult uh, to do. It was a lot of fun. There were lots of cool things to do, but it was uh, also a lot of hours and, uh, and very spiritually draining. There's a lot of egos in uh, chefs and uh, a lot of people there for the wrong reasons. A lot of people it's paid for, um, and they don't really care. They don't have a passion for it. They're just, it's just a job uh, to get through for them. But anyway, I spent a year at culinary school. Um, the first half, the first six months where I went, uh, it was in the morning. Um, and then the second half was in the afternoon. Uh, when I say afternoon, we'd start about two o'clock and go to about 10 o'clock, 10, 11 o'clock at night. Oh, wow. for classes five days a week. It's interesting to hear you talk about how that environment was spiritually draining and the competitiveness between everyone. How did you kind of overcome that? You talked about, you know, going to church events and finding yeah, those trying, people. Yeah, trying to be as involved in church as I could be, you know, uh, off hours. Of course, I, I was married at the time and that helped a lot as well. Um, and like I said, the tender mercy of this group that I, I had no control over that really. Um, I was just kind of brought into it. It was, it, it kind of happened based on where we decided to live and it just hap happened to be where uh, there were, it was outside of town a little ways and there were a few other people that lived out there and we just kind of got together. We all happened to be in the same group and when we started and 
that was really one of the tender mercies that the Lord watched out for me. Um, like I said, if I didn't, if I hadn't had that, it would have, I'm, I'm not sure. Uh, it would have, it was hard enough, uh, especially spiritually. I can't imagine being all alone uh, every day for all those hours in that environment. Yeah, that would be rough. Kind of, we kind of helped each other. I mean, we, there was a little bit of competitiveness amongst us, but it was a really healthy competitiveness competitive nature we all there was one guy in particular we both had the same goals we wanted to get straight A's perfect attendance and we would quiz each other all the time and and really try to outdo one another but it was always very friendly and helpful and um, we both did achieve our goals which is actually really hard in culinary school uh, to get straight A's and if you do at this school if you get straight A's then you receive a medal and you get special privileges about um, Typically, you have employers who come and specifically ask for uh, to interview those people who get who got straight A's, and uh, so you kind of get first choice of uh, internships and employers and and all of those kinds of things. Right. Oh wow, that's cool. So, what was the like? How when the grading did you have like more hands-on tests or was there written tests too or a combination of the both? Uh, everything. Yeah. There, uh, in fact, when you, for you, when you pass after the six month mark, around the six month mark, you have a, basically a two day testing period where you go through um, all the different areas. You go through baking and knife skills and all these different things to demonstrate that you have learned, you know, so it's mostly hands-on, but you also have a big long written test. So it's basically two days of testing to show that you are uh, have learned what you needed to learn to be able to pass on to the second half of the culinary program. And uh, yeah, pretty intense testing um, in that regard. And, you know, there's the knife skills tests that we do, for example, we were given a certain amount of product and we had to yield a certain amount out of that. Uh, based on, you know, and, and also in certain cuts. So for example, we had to yield two ounces of fine julienne uh, carrots. A fine julienne is a, is a carrot that's cut 1 16th inch once by 1 16th inch by two inches long. I mean, two ounces of that is a, is a pretty big pile. And then the chef would come by when you were, uh, and you had a certain amount of time to do it in, do all of it in. And the chef would come by and, and inspect, you know, and pick up some and look at them and determine whether or not you passed if the ratio, you know, of good to bad or whatever was, was good enough that uh, he would accept it. That's so interesting. I mean, you see that on TV shows or movies and stuff. And I've always wondered if that's actually true where like the instructors come by and actually look at the, what your, your product is and like, if it's bad, do they actually throw it out or? just tell you to redo it or well in the case of the exam um you just failed yeah oh so gotcha equivalent of throwing it out yeah they <laughs> uh, it depends the chefs usually aren't you know mad like that if you're in production maybe like if you do something wrong when when you're so you do take classes where you're actually producing food for restaurants and for, you know people um, fairly stressful, intense situations. And if you were to mess something up there, then some of the chefs would be pretty angry with you. But typically, most of them were, you know, pretty nice and soft-spoken. And I mean, they were, they had very high standards um, mm -hmm. that they would hold you to. But 
most of them weren't mean. In fact, um, Gordon Ramsay, uh, you know, for Hell's Kitchen, known for that, and he's, you know, one of those that people have watched or whatever on TV. I don't know him. I've never met him personally, but I have met chefs who, who do know him personally. And they said he's actually a very soft-spoken, kind man. The persona that he portrays on TV is, is really just an act. He just basically does it for the TV show. Yes, to... for entertainment. Interesting. Wow. So, um, I, this... you know, it's, not, it's based on reality, I guess, in the sense that it's, yes, it's, they do some of these things, but he does it, he portrays it in a more entertaining, intense, you know, way. I suppose some chefs may act like that, but the majority would not act like that. Oh, okay. Yeah. I guess it wouldn't be exciting if he was like, oh, good try. Try again yeah. for viewers to watch. Yeah, it would be a little boring. Yeah. <laughs> um, this is kind of a side question. What you're talking about knife skills. I've always been impressed with chefs and people who cook a lot and their knife skills. How long did it take you to develop that? Well, I don't know if you ever, you know, fully developed that. Mm -hmm. But in terms of the, the learning, we did a pretty intense six-week program of knife skills. Not all of it was knife skills, but, but we did some knife skills uh, every day. For about six weeks. What are two of your favorite things about being a chef? Well, um, you know, serving people is, uh, I kind of like being behind the scenes. Uh, I'm not one that uh, really wants to go out and be seen necessarily, but I like to, to please people and I like them to um, have a good experience, if you will. I guess that's part of that, you know, kind of ties into that story that I told you about um, the, the chef in Italy who produced the food for me that, you know, I, I wanted to produce it for someone. That was one of the, uh, when, I, when I think about what I'd like about being a chef, one of them is I serve people. I, I can make them happy. I can do something that, uh, that is a benefit to them. And I, not that you do that every 100% of the time, you know, not everybody is in a, in a mood or in a place to accept you or, or what you want. And the level that I was talking about has only happened to me like once or twice that I know of. But um, I like that. I like serving people and, and providing something for them that can lift them and heal them or make them feel good in some way. Um, and uh, I guess the other one, like I said, was uh, the creative outlet. I, um, and that, that's kind of a, I am in a luxury situation. One thing about chef is a lot of people think, oh, you get to create all this food. And, you know, it's, it's actually mostly repetitive when you get into it, depending on the job you have. You, a lot of time, there is some creativity, but a lot of times you, here's a recipe, produce it. And it needs to be the same quality. You know, people want very consistent food. McDonald's has kind of done that to our food system. Mm. Um, it's kind of unnatural in a, in a way, because um, in a, from my standpoint, one of the really cool things about being a chef, um, that if we would allow it to happen, is that a chef can, you know, a really good, talented chef can 
basically could figure out what, see what the food is, what's good, what's in season, put flavors together and produce food um, that is going to be pleasing to you. And it may not be the same every time. It may be even the same recipe and you may emphasize something slightly different because um, maybe an herb is not in season or, or not of quite peak quality or uh, something of that nature. And so, um, I love to interpret things and uh, be creative and try to please people. That's what I like about being a chef. But unfortunately, um, we don't necessarily allow chefs to do that all the time. I love to talk to people, hear what they want, whether I'm producing, doing something, you know, for a, I'll give you a quick story. The, my neighbors, um, their first daughter got married and um, they kept asking me to do the food for their wedding luncheon thing. I'm like, no, no, I can't do it. I can't do it. They turned them down about four times. And they finally came and said, look, we can't find anybody who can do what we want to do. Could you please do it? And I said, well, I'll sit down and talk to you. So I sat down and talked to them about what they wanted. Um, and in the end, I realized that they were right nobody could would be able to please them and uh, except me and I said look here's what you want you want a Victorian pick uh, a modern Victorian picnic where you'll have a uh, string quartet playing in the background you'll have a tent uh, the food will be uh, a bunch of uh, appetizers that people will have to come up and pick up so that they can and then go sit down in another place and mingle with someone new and they wanted a lot of mingling and a lot of different things. And um, I produced a, a menu for that, um, served it with um, a bunch of beehives, which was kind of crazy. I still don't know how I did that. And a couple of Relief Society sisters were there too. But um, in the end, there was uh, the groom's relative cousin or something was from San Francisco and was a photographer. And she came up to me and she said, that was amazing. She said, I have, I have uh, photographed hundreds of weddings uh, in the San Francisco area and never have I seen anything uh, like this. This was so cool. And that's what I like to do. That's what I like about being a chef is being able to interpret what people want, to uh, be creative, come up with something uh, that will please them and those that come and make them happy. But unfortunately, a lot of people just say, just tell me what's on your menu. Tell me what you can do. And I'm kind of in a situation when people call me, I talk to them and if they just want a menu item, a lot of times I don't end up helping them because that's not what I do. That's not what I'm capable of. Do you feel like they don't fully understand the creative side that goes into making food and how it can enhance an event? Right. Yeah. I don't, I think most people don't understand. It's like a concert, you know, and having a, a group of musicians, you know, having a live band versus uh, mm. a recording. Right. And most, yeah. people, most people just want a recording here. I just, I just want to know what it's going to be. I don't want, you know, chance that something's going to mess up or, you know, whatever, but a live band could, you know, maybe play a particular song or a particular way or whatever that, that somebody wants it that could make a, you know, a memory that is 
uh, very different than uh, just a recording. Yeah, that's a really good analogy. Yeah, most people don't want to go to a concert and just listen to the recording or the soundtrack, but they go for that live performance. And that's a good way to think about it with food as well. It, in a sense, like you were saying earlier, cooking is kind of that art form, that creative outlet. Yeah, based on what I was telling you um, about the experience I had in Italy, to me, the ultimate restaurant would be, there would be no menu. Right. It would just be somebody would come out and talk to you uh, for a little bit, maybe ask you a few questions, but you may not really even know that you're being asked questions. It would just kind of, you'd have a, a conversation, a brief conversation. And then they would go back in the kitchen. They would prepare food for you. You didn't even order. Mm-hmm. But you didn't know you ordered. And they'd bring it out. And it was exactly what you wanted and what you needed and fulfilled you and lifted you. I don't think that's possible, but to me, that would be the ultimate restaurant is, you know, you don't know what you need necessarily, but somebody can interpret what you need and fulfill it. Right. Yeah. I would go to that restaurant. That sounds like an amazing restaurant. The closest thing to that restaurant is your, uh, your mom's kitchen. True. Yeah. Kind of with that, I was just thinking how earlier you were talking about how you were raised. You were taught to cook and you had the opportunity to cook um, once a week in your family home. And do you feel like that experience is kind of not a lot of children growing up are having that experience much anymore with the fast food restaurant industry? And yes, I think they are. And, And part of it is that they're, it's not just, those that are learning how to cook, they're not learning necessarily from mom or even dad or grandmother. They're, um, they're learning from the, the Food Network, which really is not the best place to learn, uh, in my opinion. They're not teaching. My, uh, my experience is students who watch a lot of Food Network have a lot of uh, false ideas about food and cooking and, and what it should be. And I, and uh, when I teach cooking, I have to, I can usually spot those people uh, by some of their words and actions and demeanors. And um, I have to, I realize that first thing that has to happen with them is they probably have to be humbled a little bit because they think they know more than they actually do, which I love the confidence, you know, don't get me wrong. I love their confidence and their willingness to to jump in and do something, but they've kind of learned some bad habits typically. And so I'll have to, have to figure that out. But yeah, so I think it's not just that they're, they're not learning. It's that they are not learning from the right source and they're looking at food maybe in the wrong way or the wrong ways. And uh, we've, uh, it's a failure in many different ways. So this ties into my dissertation research a little bit. Um, my dissertation was on the, the, the family meal. Uh, I told you earlier that one of the reasons I thought that I went into cooking was because uh, for a long time, I thought it was just genetic. And one of the stirring moments, I don't know if you call this an epiphany or anti-epiphany moment in my life, um, but I was cooking 
with my mom or cleaning up one night actually uh, after a family meal and got into this conversation about you know how much she loved cooking and how much her you know her mother my grandmother loved cooking and my mother stopped and looked at me and she said grandma never liked to cook and i don't like to cook and i was kind of floored i'm like what what <laughs> my whole foundation of who I am and what I'm doing is based upon the fact that my mother and my grandmother are such good cooks and they love it. And so I left with this question about, well, why, why did they do it then? Why did they mm -hmm. work so hard at it? Why did they, and they were so good at it. I really, it, you know, I talked to my mom and that's, I don't need to tell you all that's part of the story, but I came to the conclusion that they did it because it was their calling as a mother. They viewed it as um, when you look at the proclamation of the family and nurturing, they looked at food as a means to nurture their family and provide the means uh, to care for them and sustain them. Um, and not just physically. That's a, a huge part of it. We, we often just think of food as filling us physically. Uh, and filling our physiological needs, uh, thinking of Maslow's hierarchy. But food actually has the capacity to fulfill all of our needs, uh, all of these, the, you know, the Maslow, how Maslow described our needs. Um, social, mental, uh, emotional, even the opportunity to serve others. Uh, Maslow talked about that. And food allows us to fulfill all those, all of the needs uh, on that hierarchy. And I think my mother and my grandmother, um, I don't think they could tell you what Ma who Maslow was or anything like that, but I think they understood inherently something that, that food did something for, the, for their family that nothing else could do. And so they worked really hard at it. And I, I look back and think of my grandmother and she, we had all these family gatherings you know, we had holidays together, summer picnics all the time with, you know, it's a big family. She had seven kids and she would, a lot of grandkids and, uh, and she would prepare these big meals. And that's partly why I thought, oh, she loved cooking because she was always, you know, having all the family come together for all these events. And she would spend hours and hours cooking and preparing and shopping. And, um, and she even cooked on a wood stove. <laughs> for part wow. of that. that's uh, for, for a lot of those things. But she just did it for, for us. You know, we would be out playing games and all kinds of things. And she was always in the kitchen. And uh, I just thought, wow, you know, I loved her. I wanted her to be there, but I just thought she loved being in the kitchen. But what she really loved was us. And she loved the opportunity for us to get together. She was the gathering force. Food was the means that she used to bring us together, to nurture us. Um, but we were fulfilled uh, in, in so many ways, and it, and it created a family unit that was extremely strong. As you were talking about that, it just reminded me of my own childhood and my family gatherings as well. And I kind of similar to you, what you're saying, I remember you know, playing with my cousins and siblings and stuff. And yeah, the um, women in the family, the 
my grandma and mom and all aunts and stuff, they would be in the kitchen and preparing the meal. And it, it's interesting how food really has that connection or brings people together. And you mentioned a little bit that your dissertation was on family meal times. Do you mind just sharing a little bit more about what you studied with that and maybe some takeaways from your research? One thing that I, I discovered, I guess, in the process was that it used to be that women were held in um, extremely high regard in society. It wasn't talked about a lot, but one of those, they were almost, women were almost seen as magical. And part of that was because they were in charge of food and food uh, production and, and that caring and nurturing was all part of that. With the... Um, Feminism, I guess you could say, uh, you know, which has done a lot of good. Don't, you know, uh, don't get me wrong in, in what I'm about to say, but it changed. There's different evidence that showed that, you know, that, that changed. And, and one of those is today we kind of look at chefs. Uh, it's transferred from the mother figure and women in general that were kind of that magical, you know, people that, that had the ability to prepare food it's now shifted to chefs and chefs weren't always seen as, you know, it's kind of an inglorious position really. Uh, it always has been historically. Um, you know, you work in the kitchen, it was, it's, it's a lot of hard work. It's drudgery. It's only recently recent history where chefs have become kind of this godlike icon. And uh, one of the things that is interesting is that that happened with kind of the, the advent at the same time of uh, the feminist movement. Women kind of just gave up that role and it shifted. People still wanted it and needed it. And it kind of shifted to chefs. But chefs don't fit the role <laughs> quite. And so uh, there's still a, a void in there, if you will. We, we need that. Um, and of course, we have the proclamation of the family that talks about the mother being that, that nurturer and care. And that's, to me, that's really what they're longing for. And I think we have to be really careful because women, the, women historically carried um, and taught the morals of society. And they taught them at the dinner, in the kitchen, at the dining table. And we have a phenomenon today that... Um, one of uh, people I interviewed uh, termed it the open kitchen and uh, described it as that the kitchen today is um, one where, you know, dad comes in and grabs something out of the fridge before he runs off to go golfing. Um, Johnny comes in, cooks a frozen burrito in the microwave before going off to football practice and uh, Jenny comes in and, you know, and grabs something before going to cheerleading. And, and basically the whole, the, the whole idea with that uh, that was described to me was we're not gathering, we're not meeting as a family, we're not using the traditional role of food to, to bring us together. And the ultimate problem with that is it, it doesn't allow the mother to um, perform her role uh, of nurturing. And not only nurturing, but to, to teach morals and civility and, you know, that are taught at the, and communication skills and all of those things that are taught at the dinner table. 
so my dissertation was is about food and how the kitchen and the dining table are are gathering places, um, but also I had two professors that coined the term metagogy. So you have pedagogy, which is um, a, a teacher-focused uh, method of instruction, you know, guided curriculum for children primarily. You have andragogy, which is adult education, where the learner basically directs their own, creates their own curriculum and determines what they're going to learn. Well, they coined the term metagogy, which meant uh, that there's another type of learning that occurs, and that is learning that just kind of spontaneously happens when you bring a group of people together. And that's what has, you know, they were talking about groups, you know, we create groups and, and different things like that. Like, for example, on Zoom, we try to create breakout rooms, you know, and all those things. Those are examples of, that they would call metagogy. Well, the, to me, when they talked me, taught me about that, I thought the best example with that was the kitchen table and the fact that, you know, we, we basically have food, we prepare food uh, for ease. So historically been easy to, to put that on the table and have everybody to come together. But the result of that was spontaneous eruptions of learning, teaching and learning that occurred within the home and that the mother was the central figure in that. And that the mother was the central figure historically in teaching all of the uh, morals of society and civilization around the kitchen table. When we give that up, when we fail to gather, when we, when we allow the open kitchen concept to occur, we're missing out, yes, on the f some of the little things of gathering, but the ramifications for our society could be very big. And to give you an example, the University of Minnesota uh, has done quite a bit of research into the family meal, and I, I cited them and studied them. And they'd learned that um, the single most, they, they coined it, they said that the single most determining factor to social adjustment or a child being socially adjusted, meaning they're much less likely to do drugs or alcohol or uh, premarital sex, you know, get better, they get better grades, all of those things. They said that the single most determining factor that they found was if children had, or families had one meal, children had one meal together with their families per day, that was more effective for social adjustment than anything else. That those children were, grew up to be better and more responsible uh, adults, basically and better civil uh, citizens in our society. That's part of it in terms of the, uh, I mean, there's a lot more to, to the research, but the whole concept of gathering. And I guess one um, example, as I was writing my dissertation, I would, uh, it was kind of ironic because I would stay extra hours, you know, to write. I was writing into the evening and I would miss the family meal. And I also thought about the fact that you know, when I do eat with my children, when the meal, once we say the prayer and we start eating, it's like an eruption with my little kids. This was this time when my kids were little. They all, you know, they all wanted to talk and they all wanted to, and that's where manners and all that come in. But, you know, they wanted to tell me about, you know, Johnny was mean to me today or I did well on a test today. And I thought, wow, it's all emotional. The table is like an emotional relief valve. 
it gives them an opportunity where they know that mom and dad, their attention is, is centered. They, they're not going to leave and they can talk and they can just, they can just let it all out. And when I realized that, I thought, wow, no wonder the University of Minnesota, <laughs> you know, that, that makes sense why they discovered that. Because if those kids don't have that emotional relief valve, they're going to try to fill it other ways, like by doing drugs or premarital sex, joining gangs. Yeah, they're going to struggle academically and mentally because food fulfill, helps us fulfill those things. And so it's, uh, you know, again, for the mother, for the father, for the family, it's a way to help that child not just fill their stomach, but to fulfill social, mental, emotional needs as well. You said so many great things and had just a lot of really great insights about family mealtimes and the power of food. And, and another thing you were mentioning when you were talking about, you know, how family mealtimes, it's more than just, you know, giving children food and nourishing them. It's all those connections that they're making, the emotions that they're able to share, those relationships that they're building. I was just thinking about, you know, the past couple of months with essentially the world has slowed down quite a bit. And while people are in quarantine, I wonder if there's a lot of families have noticed that difference and they are able to have those meal times together and if they will see the benefits of that. I was just thinking about that. It's a good thought, yeah. This week in the Nutri 150 classes, students are learning about lipids. They'll be learning about the lipid structure, the types of lipids, the foods that they're in, the functions of lipids in the body, and much more. As a chef, you have a lot of experience with creating dishes and knowing the role that food plays in the development in the dish you are trying to create. Would you be willing to talk about the role that lipids play in food, as well as how can you use lipids to enhance the flavor and texture of food? In terms of the role of lipids in cooking, I think we often see it as the enemy. Um, and yes, we do need to be careful of it, particularly it is a, one of the roles as a cooking medium. And it creates, uh, the main two things it does is flavor and texture. And um, cooking medium creates wonderful textures that we like, crunchiness and stuff like that, which makes it fun. You know, it's vibrant, it's fun, it's party food. Think of potato chips, you think something crunchy, something, you know, and that comes from using fat and, as a cooking medium. Food is really important. Fat, fat is really, really important for flavor. And when we try to cut out fat from everything, yes, we should try to reduce it. But um, a lot of times we destroy flavor when we try to cut out fat. One thing the Italians know is that they, when they make a pasta sauce, fat is really important to the texture and the flavor of coating like the pasta. And so you use fat because fat absorbs flavors and you use that to your advantage. And you can actually distribute it, you know, among other things and you can get really good flavors associated with that. So it's important to, I don't know, to not view it as the enemy and to, uh, in terms of the flavors and the textures and uh, to, to use it in, in moderation, uh, to use it in varieties rather than focusing on, you know, oh, this fat is good for you and this one is bad and things like that. Again, moderation, variety, those things that we learn from the word of wisdom, the principles are extremely important. 
So for example, we turn things, we put things on the stove. We might make a little pasta sauce or something. We'll put the garlic in, we turn it up high, we burn the garlic and we take it off and we go, oh, this doesn't taste very good. Or we will try to make a, a sauce that doesn't have any fat in it. And that without any fat, you won't, um, the Italians will cook their sauces long, low and slow. If I, they cook garlic, they're gonna cook it very gently in the oil and allow the garlic to transfer the flavor. So you're basically making a flavored oil, like a garlic oil. Uh, or they'll cook a tomato sauce for a long period of time. When I make my sauce, uh, bolognese sauce for lasagna, I'll typically cook it for about eight hours in a crock pot. And I can know when it's done because the fat will rise to the surface. And, and I, you know, I can look and see that fat and go, okay, it has the flavors in it now. And then I can, you know, transfer that. And I know that that's going to coat the pasta and things. And I, um, it's just a basic cooking principle um, that I've discovered, you know, in Italian cooking that, you know, what makes Italian cooking good? Well, one, they live in a very rich agricultural area in the world, but you know what? So do we, United States is, is, is a great agricultural spot in the world. Uh, not that, you know, it's hard to get everything in Idaho that's really as fresh, but, but what do we do different? We want to hurry everything. They're patient and they understand some of the principles and they, and they don't look at food as the enemy or they're not looking for any one thing. They eat a lot of variety in their diet. They eat a lot of carbs. Typically every meal, they're going to eat pasta or rice or something like that. Is the, it's the focus. It's, that's the primary thing they eat. And that's a principle of the word of wisdom is grains as the basis for what we eat. They eat carbs, they eat fat, but they eat it in a way that they don't overeat it. Um, and they don't use, they use fat as a cooking medium, but not, I mean, occasionally they'll fry food, yes, but it's more of a flavor transfer. So they'll eat, they don't need as much fat and they don't get as much fat in the food. It just kind of coats and carries some flavor associated with it. And where do those flavors come from? Most flavors really come from vegetables, uh, fruits to a certain degree. But when you think about uh, flavors, vegetables are one of our primary sources of flavor. And um, one of the problems with them is that we don't learn to eat them and we don't learn to cook them properly from a, when we're kids. And so we don't learn to appreciate the flavors. So really all we like is salt and crispiness we don't really know how to taste food. That's one of our problems. Salt and sugar are very quick tasting on the tongue. When we call it fast food, why do we call it fast food? Partly because it's cooked fast, but partly because I can ingest it fast. And if I want to ingest something quickly, I want to have some taste. Um, typically, all I'm going to taste is salt and sugar because it's very fast acting flavor uh, on your taste buds and you don't get the richness. So to me, I, can't, I, I hardly, can't hardly stand a fast food hamburger because it just doesn't have very good taste um, or texture for that matter. Flavor and texture, I feel like that could be a whole other interview, just kind of the components of that and how it really enhances food. And I never thought about that before, just having that patience in cooking. And to hear you say you cook a sauce that takes eight hours is probably mind-blowing to a lot of people. So, um, when I do my pizza crusts, I do it for two to three days. Wow. 
let it rise. That's so that gets into, I mean, gluten development and, and a whole nother yeah. uh, story as well. Going back to the texture, you know, there's lots of different things that you, you can look at uh, that lipids provide, but they all kind of relate back to flavor and texture. And so, you know, they do provide a richness, which um, you could say that's depending on what people say, some people say richness and, and it would refer to flavor and some people it would refer to texture, but it, it refers to one or the other flavor or texture, a combination of both of them. Uh, flakiness, when you, when we talk about flakiness and pie crusts, things like that, um, that is because of the fat. Of course, there's other, you know, it's also dependent upon gluten development and water and all those other things too. But, uh, but the, the fat and the way it's incorporated is, um, is key and what we really are talking about is the texture that we create with that uh, fat. Um, we also have emulsions and foams. Um, fat is uh, very important to that. Again, there's, you know, flavors tied in there as well, but we have lots of foods and, uh, well, and other things in life too, paint, et cetera, that are emulsions. Emulsions are very important. Um, uh, Ice cream is both an emulsion and a foam, for an example, and uh, fat plays an integral role in that. Um, now, of course, richness, you can also say richness and, you know, when you, and, and even uh, chocolate milk, why is, why is Reed's chocolate milk different? A lot of people would say, oh, because it uses potato flakes in it and stuff. Well, no, not really the, um, in fact, the potato flakes are more of a novelty than anything else. Uh, Brother President Reed put him in because he knew he needed some kind of a starch stabilizer. Um, it doesn't really work all that well. He just left it in because it was a novelty. It sold better. It's, a marketing, it's more of a marketing thing. Why does Reed's chocolate milk taste better? Because it has more fat in it. Um, and so it has a better, richer texture, you know. Uh, of course, fat lubricates, you know, uh, makes things easier to chew and swallow and uh, and all of those things. It helps prevent sticking. Um, it is a, uh, like I mentioned, a cooking medium. That's where it's over overused, um, where we, we love to deep fry foods because of twofold effect, uh, which are again, both flavor and texture oriented. Um, because of uh, fat, will uh, it's liquid. We can immerse something in it. So you get a nice, even, you know, coating or cooking temperature all the way around. Um, you also get uh, a crunchiness, so you get that texture because of that. You can cook at higher temperatures in that liquid. So water, if you just cook uh, a potato in water, in boiling water, that's a, the highest temperature it can go is the boiling point, where whatever elevation you are. That will create a certain texture. But if I take that same potato and put it into oil, which can, uh, get to much higher temperatures, I get a, a two different effects. One, I get a, the texture effect, uh, the crunchiness, depending on how thick it is. And two, I get the Maillard reaction, which is uh, a chemical reaction uh, between carbohydrates and proteins that uh, create uh, a lot of, it's a complex chemical reaction I don't understand at all, but you get a lot of um, chemical changes that uh, create wonderful flavors. Uh, aromas associated with that. And so ultimately by using, by cooking in fat, we get this wonderful texture and we get this Maillard reaction. Um, and we love both of those. 
So it's, and, and like I said, it's fun. And we, a lot of times I think we're searching, going back to Maslow's hierarchy. A lot of times I think we, um, we eat foods that, that are fun because we may have eaten those when we had a fun party, when we had a fun experience. And so when I'm down or lonely or depressed or whatever, um, I probably eat the same thing to try to get the same effect. And it's not a physiological effect. It's a mental uh, effect that, they're, that people are looking for. Um, I'm looking for something that will uh, you know, make me happy, if you will. But it's not really the food that make you happy. The food just reminds you of maybe when you were happy or, or you're trying to use food to transport you, you know, back there and it, and it doesn't really happen. Really what happens is you, you're trying to fulfill something physiologically that you can't do. Uh, it has to be mental or social or, or something else. And so you just kind of eat, keep eating it and keep eating it. Same kind of thing could happen flavor-wise. Um, that I, you know, I, I look for, I call it flavor satiety. Um, a lot of times when we eat a variety of foods, we can achieve flavor satiety. In other words, uh, fullness. I can get a fullness of flavor because I can get a fulfillment of, uh, one, I think it does relate physiologically to nutrients and things like that as well. But um, if I just eat something sweet, I'll eat it and I'll eat it and I'll eat it. Um, and it, in fact, the flavor satiety goes down. In other words, the more I eat, the less satisfied I am with eating it. Or salty foods, the same kind of thing. I'm searching for something. I'm, I'm uh, in other words, that's a lot of times what you're doing with foods is you're searching for um, an event or you're searching for a, an emotion. You're searching to be fulfilled in other ways besides physiologically. And that's why I can overeat because I just, I keep looking for that, uh, for, for that fulfillment of other needs besides that physiological. And so I can eat and eat and eat and it never comes. Um, but for me personally, I love a variety of foods. I know if I, if I eat a variety of foods, I can stop eating and I sit back and I go, wow, that was fulfilling. And I, and I mean that it is, when I say that, I mean, wow, I just had a meal that it, it fulfilled me physiologically, physiologically, but also socially and mentally. And I, and I feel satisfied in a way that I'm like, I don't, I don't really care for anything else. I'm happy. I'm very content uh, at this point. The flavors, the, but it's also the emotions and everything else were very satisfying to me. When I have a meal like that, I typically don't overeat. Um, and I don't feel like I have to have dessert or I have to have something else afterwards. Uh, I'm just content. And, and a lot of times uh, we eat so quickly, we don't get, we don't achieve flavor satiety because we are, we're just like fast food, you know, you'll never be, to me, you never achieve flavor satiety in fast, fast food because you're always um, just, engulfing it. You're looking for physiological rather than uh, social, emotional, other uh, fulfillments. As you were sharing that, I just, I've never been to Europe, but I've heard how that maybe at dinner time they just take more, I don't know how many hours, and maybe you have an insight on this since you've 
been to Europe, but uh, they take multiple hours on their meals. And I don't know if that's just at dinner or if it's other meals too, but I wonder if that plays a role in how, why we try to aspire to their diet or the Mediterranean diet, like you said, not only because um, of the flavors, but also that they do take the time to enjoy the meal both socially, emotionally, and all of those things. And it, like you said, it just kind of fills them up in a lot of different ways. Yeah, they would rather have quality rather than quantity. And we are much more about quantity rather than quality. And the, the hard part, the hard reality of that is that quantity will never really fulfill us. That's what I mean by flavor, flavor satiety. Whereas, you know, they will have smaller portions, a variety of things, um, and also they want to gather and talk and take more times for meals and because they understand that it's, yes, it is more about uh, the event and the gathering and fulfilling other needs other than just filling my stomach. And here yeah. we just, we take it to the extreme, even, you know, um, eat in our cars all the time, you know, eat on the go, all of those things. And we never, we, we're not satisfied. We, we can't be satisfied and we tend to overeat because of that, because we're looking for other things and they will take in Italy. It's basically the law to close your business um, from one to three o'clock. So you go home and have family meal. That's the big meal of the day and you relax. And then at three o'clock you go back to work. I wonder how the culture in America would change um, if, all of the programs were more emphasizing taking that time to eat and all of that rather than, I mean, it's good to emphasize eating a variety of those different foods that are nutrient dense, but if we did take the time to eat at home and eat with other people, if that could change that obesity epidemic that we're facing in America, it'd be interesting. It would be very interesting. Maybe I'll start that. Just kidding. Okay. <laughs> I'll go start some programs. Then we'll see what happens. <laughs> you can help me out with that. <laughs> we'll call it the Word of Wisdom Diet. Oh, yeah. There you go. The new fad diet, but it's not a fad. <laughs> it's not a fad. It's based on uh, principles. Yes. Exactly. Principle yeah. with promise. There you go. That's a, whole nother, that's a whole other um, story. Well, thank you, Jeff. This has been so awesome. And like I said, you, I feel like there's so much more that we could talk about, but I really appreciate you taking the time to let me interview you and for sharing uh, your experiences with us. You're welcome. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Beyond the Classroom podcast. In this episode, we learn from the TAs about the importance of having gratitude in your life and sharing those moments with others. We also received a challenge to try something new as we try to manage during this pandemic. And again, a big thanks to Jeff Hamblin for being on the show and sharing his knowledge and experiences with food and cooking with us. And as always, thanks for listening, and I'll see you next week. 